trying to drink less alcohol, but need some extra motivation. Maybe you've tried moderation, but you keep waking up disappointed and hungover. Are you curious about sober life? Or maybe you're like us, have been alcohol free for a while and are in it for the long haul. Well, you're in the right place. I'm Meg. And I'm Bella. And our Not Drinking Today podcast is an invaluable resource to keep you motivated and on track today and beyond. We are This Naked Mind certified coaches who live in Sydney and love our alcohol-free life. And last but not least, if you enjoy the content of our podcast, please rate, review, subscribe and share it. It really is integral to getting the podcast out to those that might need it. So grab a cuppa and let's get started. Ash Butters will be well known to many of our listeners. Ash is the podcast host of Behind the Smile, which is such an awesome name for a podcast. Ash is also a wellness mentor, speaker, writer, and a yoga meditation teacher. Put simply, Ash is on a mission to remove the stigma around mental health and addiction. Ash's life changed forever on the 24th of February, 2020, when she stepped foot into a treatment centre in the northern beaches of Sydney, Australia. Ten days earlier, she had hit her rock bottom, and in her own words, Ash was in the grips of alcohol addiction. Ash, welcome to our Not Drinking Today podcast. So lovely to have you on. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to be here. It's really heartwarming, actually, to have a fellow podcaster on the show that's also doing amazing work in Australia on the topic of alcohol. Um, Ash, I'm going to hand it over to you. Uh, Mm -hmm. Really, I guess, where did your story start and what led to that rock bottom moment? Mm, Yeah, that's a great question. And it's always one that's it brings up different, different emotions every time I reflect back on it. But I think to answer the question simply, where did it start? It started at the beginning for me. So I was born into an alcoholic home. And what that looked like was my my dad was an alcoholic and is in recovery today. But when I was born, he was very much drinking at the time. And my mum is the daughter of an alcoholic. So on both sides of the family tree, alcoholism runs rampant. And what that meant for me as a child is that I grew up in an environment that was quite unpredictable and it wasn't necessarily violent, which is what I think some some people come to mind. They think an alcoholic home can be quite violent Mm -hmm. and absolutely, yes, that can be the case, but that wasn't my experience. My experience was growing up in an environment that was was chaotic but also quite secretive. And so for me there was a lot of uncertainty, a lot of I suppose you would describe it as walking on eggshells. I never really knew what version of my parents I was going to get on any given day. Mm. And there was obviously a lot of arguing between the two of them, uh, a lot of yelling, a lot of screaming. And so I didn't feel particularly safe in that environment. And as a result, I really had to grow up earlier than my years. So from a very young age, I felt like I stepped into that parent role And I was very conscious of being the one in my family. I'm the youngest. I've got an older brother as well. I felt very responsible for everybody else's happiness. So I was, from a very young age, I learned to start putting on different masks. And I really adapted my behavior dependent on what environment I was in, who was there. And I was constantly thinking, who do I need to be to make sure everyone else is okay? And so you can imagine growing up like that, 
I became more and more disconnected from my true essence, my true being, because that didn't matter. That wasn't important. When it came to survival, what was important was that everyone else around me was okay. So that led to a lot of people pleasing, Mm. chronic perfectionism. uh, And I started searching from a very young age for things outside of me to make me feel okay. I didn't know at the time, but I describe it now as that hole in the soul. Like I really felt that from a very young age. And so one of the earliest things I used was food. Hmm. And I can remember my brother was a very gifted sportsman and we would spend every weekend watching him play sport. And I remember my parents giving me money and I would go off to the canteen and I would buy that many lollies that I would make myself sick. Or I remember one time I ate that much ice cream from the Mr. Whippy van that I broke out in a rash. And I was, you know, and I associated food with comfort. That was sort of my first experience of, yeah, finding something outside of myself. And then at the age of 12, I discovered alcohol. Now, when I say discovered, I obviously knew very much what alcohol was, the effects it had. Um, how it made adults silly and and do silly things and get themselves in danger. I had firsthand experience of all of that. But for some strange reason, that didn't put me off it. I was really curious and I actually wanted to try it. There was, I think, a part of me that was desperate to grow up. I remember fantasizing about having my license when I was like eight years old. Like I just couldn't wait to be an adult. And so when the opportunity arose for me to try alcohol for the first time, we were at a Christmas party at a family friend's house. There was probably over 200 people there uh, and I was able to to hide it. So I started drinking these cocktails that they had at the entrance of this big party. And sure enough, I drank to blackout that very first time. I ended up with my head in a toilet bowl. My parents were really, really mad, Hmm. mainly I think because they had to leave the party (laughs) (laughs) rather than anything else because they were having such a good time. Hmm. And it was a really interesting moment. I often reflect on this because, and this is no fault of my parents, and I, I always stress that I understand today that my parents did the absolute best with what they had and the tools that they were given from their parents. So I certainly don't sit here blaming them. But I do think at that time that would have been a great opportunity to perhaps have a conversation about alcohol and the effects of alcohol and the importance of having a mindful relationship with alcohol. But that unfortunately wasn't the case. And the way that my parents responded, which I also now understand was a fear response, was they 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 yelled, they screamed, and then I was grounded. Uh. Now, all that taught me was I need to learn how to hide this better. So I started becoming very secretive, very manipulative, and all of those different survival traits that I developed from that age of 12 carried through until my 20s, the beginning of my early 30s until I got sober. So, you know, I... I I had these two split personalities in many ways because I was that chronic people pleaser and perfectionist. When I was at school, I was very studious. I was academic. I was in the music program, the drama program, captain of this, prefect of that, ticking all the boxes and making sure everything looked good on the outside. And then on the weekends, I'd be going out, taking drugs, drinking crazy amounts of alcohol, hooking up with guys, all all the things that I shouldn't have been doing. I was pushing Mm. the envelope constantly. 
And again, I didn't know who the real Ash was. Was I the bad rebellious one or was that the perfect one? Mm. And so again, that disconnect, it just grew wider and wider and wider. And I became more and more unconscious. And I suppose looking back now, life just started to happen to me. I don't think I ever had really any clear direction. I was kind of just going with the flow. So I finished school and I remember I got into university to study journalism, but I was wanting to party too much. So I ended up convincing my parents that I was going to go and do a diploma of beauty therapy to take like a year off, I suppose. Um, And which really just allowed me to drink and drug as much as I wanted to. But I kept ticking these boxes along the way. And over the next decade, that's when my drinking and my drug use really escalated. Uh, at one point, I had to go to my parents for a bailout when I was 18, 19, and that's when I ended up in my first, it wasn't actually a rehab, it was more of a health farm up, ah. in, up in Queensland where they did colonic irrigation and isotonics and there was a real sort of wellness approach. Yeah. This was prior to anyone in my family getting sober. So we didn't really understand addiction or alcoholism yeah. and that was that was the solution that my parents had to the, their daughter, you know, running up this massive drug debt and, and needing to get clean and sober at the time. I remember my dad, you know, he always shares he used to think that rehabs were reserved for rock stars. <laughs> and I think back, you know, this is sort of 2005, 2006, I think that was. That's what we saw in the movies and, you know, mm. I know we've come a long way. But, of course, that didn't work. That uh, I got home and I drank and used that night because there wasn't any education, there wasn't any looking at my mental health or what was going on around me, any history of trauma as to why I was drinking and using the way I was. Mm. And that continued on, yeah, up until 2020, which was the year I got sober. I moved to Sydney as I was sharing with you guys offline earlier. I did a geographical in 2014 because I had decided, well, I'd basically burnt my life down in Melbourne. I had destroyed a relationship, taken a hostage. My behaviour was just so out of control that I couldn't even walk down the street. I was just full of so much shame, my tail mm-hmm. between my legs and I I decided that everyone else was the problem and Melbourne mm-hmm. was the problem and I would move to Sydney and everything would be <laughs> fine. But, of course, where you yeah. go, there you are. Yeah. And my problems went straight up there with me and that was an interesting time. You know, I ended up meeting a man that I would later marry. He had his own battles with addiction and so we formed a very codependent relationship and there was a lot of trauma bonding that went on there. Uh, and yeah, that sort of just continued, continued spiraled. And then it got to the point where I did, I hit my rock bottom moment at the very beginning of 2020. And that's, I suppose a gift because that's really where I made the decision to go into rehab. And from that day, I haven't picked up a drink or a drug. Yay. Oh, I love (laughs) that. Oh, there is so much in that story, Ash. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing all of that. Um, I often talk about, you know, trauma, and I know mm. you do talk a lot about trauma. Uh, and I can really relate to that not knowing who you were because you were making other people happy. And um, I had very similar, except my parents didn't drink. So different mm. circumstances. And I often find myself, well, I have done in the past, almost apologizing for not having the massive, massive trauma. Yes. um, But it changes your life. This is what I say about our brain. You know, someone, and you've obviously did have a 
traumatic childhood, but like you said, there wasn't the violence, which some people go through. And for me, there there was a little bit, but there wasn't the alcohol. And mm. people need to know that it doesn't, it doesn't matter. You deserve to get well and mm. to work out your own issues. I, I think I had to get to a point where I, I believed I deserved that. Mm. So I just mm. wanted to um, say that for people listening. Yeah, look, Meg, I can really relate to that. It wasn't until I was actually about a week into treatment that I was able to identify for the first time that I had actually experienced trauma. And it was when we went through this process where we were asked to do a a timeline. So from the age of zero to 17, we had to map out any significant moments throughout our lives. Now, being the perfectionist that I was, I got my piece of paper and I was ruling and color coding and, you know, making sure that it was going to get, you know, gold star A plus when I went to share this at my my group. (laughs) And I sat there and and I read it out to everyone. And a couple of things came up out of that. My primary therapist turned to me and she said, Ash, the first thing I need to make clear right now is that you didn't just experience trauma. You experienced prolonged trauma throughout the majority of your life. Now, because I just thought that the things that I had seen and witnessed and experienced were normal because mm. if if you don't know any different, you don't know any different, particularly yeah. as a child. So that was really interesting and hugely powerful because for the first time I was given permission to actually acknowledge what had happened. Mm. And all of a sudden I started to put the pieces together as to why I felt so disconnected, why I felt so empty and alone and why I had that hole in my soul. The second thing that came out of that experience was she said, Ash, you smiled throughout that entire share. (laughs) Yeah which was pretty scary because some of the stuff Mm -hmm. I was saying, but that's just Mm. how disconnected I was from reality. Mm. You know, we talk about alcoholism or addiction as being the disease of denial and it it is because if we acknowledge it and we create awareness around Mm. it, then it can't survive. But if we continue to minimise and silence, you know, like what Brene Brown says about shame, like yeah, that secrecy, keeping yeah. shame in the dark, that's when it grows and festers and we don't ever get to move on from it. So, yeah, that was hugely powerful for me to understand as well that even though I hadn't experienced sexual abuse or physical mm. violence, there were many, many, many instances throughout my life where mm. I had experienced trauma. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you mentioned um, and quite a bit there about perfectionism and mm. people-pleasing, which are such an exhausting combination to have and so many people with that need a big stress release, you know, because you're holding on with this pretense of how you present to the world and it's really difficult. It's it, mm. it's never attainable. Mm. And um, now that you've you're on the other side of perhaps using alcohol as a form of stress release for those those two things. How do you keep those sorts of things in check now? How have you how have you done the work to kind of undo a lot of the people pleasing and perfect, perfectionism that may have been created early on in your your years? Mm, that's a great question. I think for me, the biggest thing that I had to do was heal the relationship with myself. Mm. Because until I actually, you know, I came into recovery with low self-esteem, high ego, 
pretending like everything was okay and I had it all together and, you know, I was in so much denial and delusion about where I had taken my life to, particularly because I had been so good at keeping everything looking good. <laughs> like when you on the outside are ticking life's boxes, which is sort of how I describe it, you know, I'd gotten married, I'd bought the house in Bondi, I was working for the number one global beauty brand, traveling the world. Even I was like, hang on a minute, I can't be an alcoholic. Look at all of this stuff that I'm doing. Look at all of these achievements that I have. But it goes back to that reality of of just being so, so disconnected. And as a result of that and that chronic people pleasing and that perfectionism, the inner critic that I had, I call it the itty-bitty shitty committee that lived inside my mind. (laughs) Love it. My gosh, they were loud. They they were so, so loud. And here's the problem. When I put down the drinking and the drugs, they got louder Mm. because alcohol was my solution to quietening those voices. So to answer your question, how did I start to overcome that? I really had to put in the work to start, number one, forgiving myself. Yeah. Number two, rebuilding my self-esteem, which was all but decimated when I stepped through the doors of that rehab. Because when you're drinking every single day or maybe every other day or maybe you've just been on the weekends, it doesn't really matter the specifics. But if you're telling yourself you're not going to do something and then you constantly let yourself down, it just smashes your self-esteem and your self-worth. I got to the point where I felt like I was just living in Groundhog Day because every single morning I would promise myself I'm not going to drink today. I would be so violently hungover getting myself ready for work. I'd often go to the gym prior to that, you know, reeking of vodka. I'd work out. I'd get to work. I'd be there on time. I would like through gritted teeth try and get through the morning, have a couple of ibuprofen, a couple of coffees, some food, and then all of a sudden- it's lunchtime and my mind starts to go, mm. glass of wine would be nice tonight. Mm-hmm. Like the insanity of it all. And, you know, I wrestle with the idea for maybe 30 minutes. By the afternoon I've committed to the fact that I'm just going to have one, just one, you know, just to take the edge off. And then, of course, you buy the bottle of wine. You can't stop at one, so you finish that bottle. I would then nine times out of 10, get a second bottle. And then I drink until I passed out and repeat the whole cycle over again the next day. Like it Mm. was just, it was just insanity. So just by not drinking every day, I was showing up for myself. Just by not drinking every day, that self-esteem started to grow and build. And then the really cool thing is when you're not disappointing yourself every day, when you choose a life of sobriety, you get to show up for other people as well. Yeah. And all of a sudden I was I wasn't breaking promises anymore. If I said I was going to be somewhere, then I would I would turn up and I would be helpful. You know, rather than the old ash that would go to a party and just want to be line for the fridge and then, you know, be out the back smoking and drinking and talking yeah. to everyone and trying to be the life of the party and have all eyes on me because I needed the validation to know that I was okay not caring about the host who was probably in the kitchen slaving away and there I am breaking glasses and just being a menace, like all of that stuff. It just, Mm. I was just so sick and tired of living that existence. And, you know, the funny thing is like I was so, so scared of getting sober because I thought I was going to have to give up my life. Like it got to the point where I was like, okay, well, if I keep going the way I'm going, I'm probably going to die. So I know I need to get sober. But 
I'm probably going to live a really boring existence. And the complete opposite has been the case. Like the life I get to live today is just so full of colour and deep connected relationships and this fulfilment and joy that I didn't even know was possible. Like it's just so crazy to think that I thought my life was going to be over. Yeah. I actually just put a Instagram post up this morning and it was what I've gained some of the things and it was the connections, the clarity, Mm. the joy, the things that when you are drinking you think like exactly like you just said aren't possible because, you know, the worry is that, yeah, your life will end. Mm. But I was in the exact same Groundhog Day and, I mean, the exhaustion, the shame and it's just, you know, it was just such a hard, hard way to live. Um, And I think we're just so lucky we can talk about that and help other people. When you said, you know, um, alcoholic and there's such a stigma, but if you replace that with uh, alcohol use disorder, I I think that opens up a lot of um, options for people. I can clearly say I had alcohol use disorder. I don't need to use the word alcoholic, but um, you know, I wasn't using it responsibly. Mm. And it's just so wonderful to see what's possible on the other side. So you've been um, sober since 2020. How did rehab help you? Because so many people will say that they didn't come out of rehab and never drink again. Um, Mm. So a lot of people, as Bella, you know, experienced as well and uh, some friends might, uh, it it takes a few times. So what do you feel helped you carry on alcohol-free? I don't know if I have the short answer to why I got it the first time and so many don't, but I can definitely share what I did. Uh, that has obviously helped in some way because I am still sober. Now, when I went into rehab, that wasn't the first time I had thought about giving up drinking. There was about a decade there from 2012, sorry, 2010 to 2020, mm-hmm. uh, where I was, you know, I would I would have a night where it was just crazy drinking. I'd blow up my life and then I'd wake up in the morning, tail between the legs, and I'd call my dad who was in 12-step fellowship and I'd say, can you take me to a meeting? Or he would say, come on, sweetie, let's go to a meeting. But the problem was is I'd go to those meetings and I'd sit there and I, I was filled with that much guilt, shame and remorse that it was almost like I was just wearing armour It was this armour that I'd put on to try and protect myself, but the problem with wearing all of this invisible armour, number one, it was heavy and I was exhausted, but number two, I couldn't hear the message. It's like I had cotton wool in my ears. So whatever was going on around me, I just wasn't getting it. But I had gone to probably half a dozen of those over that period of time, and that's why I often try to share with people, you're not going to be ready till you're ready. Yeah. Like, and it's so, so hard for some people, particularly when you're watching a loved one struggle with addiction, because you just want to be able to fix them. But until they're ready, I don't believe there's really anything you can do except wait. Um, In saying that, by the time I went into rehab, I had the gift of desperation. I was so done. 
I was so sick and tired of feeling sick and tired. Like I just didn't know how there was any other solution. In saying that, on my way to rehab, I was still very much convinced that I was going in there to learn how to drink properly. Like that was my end goal. I was like, I'm going to learn how to drink like a lady and everything's going to be fine because I couldn't possibly, this is my head, right, my voice, Mm. my inner critic, there's no way you're going to be able to go to those work functions or travel overseas or do this Mm. or do that or, you know, go to a friend's wedding sober. No way. It just wasn't in my mind a possibility at the time. And what that that three weeks at South Pacific taught me was I have a disease called alcoholism. It's incurable, but I can get daily relief and be mm. free of the obsession and the and the cravings and all that kind of stuff. But the reality is this is a lifetime sentence and I will not ever be able to drink safely again. That's yeah. that was the messaging that I was given. And going back to your point about why I know many, many people don't like the term alcoholic and I very much say each to their own, I actually do identify as an alcoholic and I'm part of 12-step fellowship. And for me, it's really helpful because when it was explained to me what an alcoholic actually is or what the disease of alcoholism actually is, not what the stigma says it is, not what the stereotype says it is, what it actually is, I identified. Hmm. And I was like, oh, that's 100% me. And then when they said there's a solution and it's doing this, X, Y, Z, I was like, I can do that. Mm. Yeah. And all of a sudden this thing that in my mind just seemed so impossible became possible. Yeah. So it was actually for me really, really helpful. So I... To answer your question, I, I got out of rehab and I started in 12-step fellowship or continued on because they, they took us to a few meetings while mm. I was in there. Mm-hmm. And that's been a staple of my recovery for the last three and a half years. But then I also do a lot of stuff on top of that. So at a year sober, I went back and I trained to be a yoga and a meditation teacher. Now, oh, anyone listening along, yeah. you don't have to go to the extreme. Like maybe it's just you start to go, you know, maybe go to a couple of yoga classes Meditation has been the biggest game changer in my recovery. And what meditation has really given me is the ability to pause. And that has been so, so powerful in so, so many ways. I, When I was in my addiction, I was so highly reactive. Number one, I had, like, I had such a short fuse, probably because I was sleep deprived, hungover, irritable. Mm-hmm. So I would be really reactive and anyone would set me off. But but not only that, that, that voice that I was describing, that inner critic was just telling me the wildest, craziest things. So then I get sober and I've still got this voice, which I should stress today is very infrequent. Mm. However, can still show up from time to time. In my early days of recovery, it was still pretty much there every day. And so what meditation started to do is it started to create space in my mind where I was able to pause and then respond rather than react. I often describe it as, you know, if you imagine that your mind is the ocean and you've got the waves going, if it's a dark cloud, stormy day, the waves are really choppy. If you look down, there's no way you're going to see the bottom of the ocean That's exactly like our mind. When our thoughts are cloudy and dark and there's a lot going on in there and there's a lot of busyness, we can't actually connect into our own clarity of mind and our own true essence and inner knowing. But when you start to meditate, 
it allows you to calm the mind, to create stillness. And you know what it's like on a flat, clear day. You look down, you can see the bottom of the ocean. Yeah. So that's well yeah. said. Well described, Ash. I loved hearing that. Yeah. It's just been absolute number one game changer for me. Yeah. And the other thing to note about meditation is that you can start right now. Like I mm. say to people all the time, you do not have to sit in the lotus position with your eyes closed for 20 minutes at a time. That like absolutely you can if that's your thing. But you can start with just a minute of mindfulness in the shower. Yeah. Uh, the the Headspace app was the first one that I downloaded and I used for the first 12 months of my sobriety. I loved it because there's a tracker every day. Yep. Every day that you keep doing it consistently, it's got that gamification thing mm. where you get stars and and I'm I'm you know so competitive, even with myself, <laughs> that I like I couldn't I couldn't break my streak because I wanted to keep, keep I going. wanted to hit 365 days, and I did, and that really worked for me. So just finding what works for you, um, but that that's been a huge game changer for my recovery. I wonder if um, also having a podcast which allows you to shine a light on alcohol and talk about it, talk about the tools and also say to the world loudly and proudly, this is my history, this is my past, this is who I am and I'm happy and proud and living authentically who I am. I wonder if that's Mm -hmm. also part of uh, what everyone calls, you know, the sober practice because Mm -hmm. I've been thinking about that a lot as well just in terms of my own experience as well because there was a lot of shame and anxiety attached with going into rehab, you know, Mm. all those thoughts about how am I going to go back into the real world and tell my close-knit community out there in Sydney, you know, I'm going to be the mum that (laughs) went into rehab for four weeks. Mm. Mm. That occupied a lot of my thoughts. And I also think I was drinking in and caught up in a bit of a cycle there to cover up a lot of the shame from what I was, you know, being caught uh, drinking the the previous nights before. And I, mm. you know, Brene Brown, who we all love, often talks about the antidote to shame is shining a light, bringing it all out in the open, talking about it. And I think that also helps perfectionistic tendencies as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so this whole podcasting method and everybody else out there would have their own way that you can do this journaling, blogging, going to groups and talking about it. But owning it can also be part of it. Is that? Do you feel that same way as well, a little Ash? Absolutely, absolutely, I do. I have no doubt that <laughs> starting a podcast is a way to keep yourself accountable. Yes, <laughs> yeah, but the world, yeah, yes, but it's not the only way. The real driving force behind why I started behind the smile was that I was just so disappointed that in 2020, 2021, 2022, there was Mm. still this stigma around addiction. You know, and for me personally, having a dad who was at the time when I got sober 10 years sober Mm. and yet I still had that old idea that I couldn't possibly be an alcoholic because I wasn't living under a bridge or drinking spirits out of a brown paper bag. You know, it was just a delusion. and so. In my mind, I thought, well, the only way we're going to remove this stigma is by starting to actually talk about it. And how can I possibly expect anyone else to talk about it if I'm not willing to put my face out there and talk about it? 
And I know that the sober movement is booming and that's incredible. And there are so many more people talking about it now, which is fantastic. Mm. But when I was in that decade of, you know, crashing and bashing and contemplation, there was not a, there was no one that looked like me no. that was out there talking about it. And I was just like, why? So really, and I still stand by it and it's my mission, it's my purpose just to remove that stigma, whether it's we're talking about trauma, whether we're talking about addiction or mental health, because they're all intertwined. They Very are. rarely will you have one without the other. Mm-hmm. That's what I wanted to do, to be able to shine a light and share these stories so that people can identify and actually maybe think about removing alcohol from their life or know how to support a loved one or just shift their mindset on what addiction is. You know, I thought addiction was a moral failing. Mm. I thought that, and, you know, when you spoke about that shame before going into rehab, I still identify with that. Yeah, I thought I was garbage. I thought Mm. I was trash. I was the worst person in the world because I couldn't control and manage my drinking. No matter how much people begged, no matter how much my loved ones, you know, tried to reason with me, I couldn't do it. And that going back to that point, I said, when it was explained to me that as an alcoholic, something very different physiologically happens to me when I drink alcohol compared to somebody who doesn't have this disease. So what I mean by that is when I take a drink, it sets off something in me, a phenomenon of craving Hmm. where I want more. it's an obsession and I want more and I want more. And as I have two and three, I want more. Hmm. Whereas your moderate temperate drinker will have one or two glasses and then perhaps put the lid back on the bottle and go, (laughs) "Hmm, that's enough for me. Thank you. I'm starting to feel a bit funny Mm -hmm. now, or I'm starting (laughs) to get tired. That doesn't happen to me. The opposite happens. I get thirstier and thirstier and thirstier. When I understood that, all of a sudden I wasn't a piece of anymore. Because it wasn't you. You weren't to blame. The exactly substance right. was and what it does to the brain. Exactly yeah. right. It was doing what it was designed to do. I'm just more susceptible to it. Yeah, yeah. You know you know what, Ash? I might have passed you in the rooms on the northern beaches because, oh. yeah, I we had South Pacific come and visit. I was in AA for a while and I have a close family member who's 16 years sober through AA So here at uh, Not Drinking Today, we support everyone in every way on their journey to sobriety. I'm, I loved AA. Uh, I love, I love the community. For me, community is everything. Um, And at this point in my lifetime wise, I had to stop going, but um, I look at my family member and I just think, you know, it saved their life. Mm. Um, so yeah, we're definitely open to everything here. And I've also had people say to my face, I didn't know you were an alcoholic. And you know what? It doesn't worry me at all right. at all yes. anymore. I just go, yeah, whatever. You know, <laughs> I mean, on the flip side, we're also really strong women who have kicked that shit out of our lives. So oh, I yeah, know. it feels good. Whenever I meet somebody else who's chosen to remove alcohol from their life, I just think to myself, you are effing amazing mm. because we know how hard it is. It is not wow. the easier, softer way. This is this this can be a painful journey at times because you have to feel everything. You but do. But the payoff 
Oh my gosh. Oh, it's like never, without a doubt, no question worth it, right? Never yeah, no. would I go back. It just compounds, no. compounds mm-hmm. all the bad compounds bits. Compounds misery. Blocks yeah. out all the good bits. Yeah. Um, and it, sorry, it's a hard, yeah. it's also is a hard journey. I know a lot of people say to me um, or, or expect to give up and be fine, but the work is that we need to work on ourselves and you know, 19 months on, I'm, I've just started seeing a psychologist and we're really going back to that uh, childhood reason, trauma and everything. Mm-hmm. So it's, and I've worked through different things, but it's ongoing. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's not easy, but the the opposite is that we just keep numbing that. And like you said, Ash, I was just going to die in the end. So yeah. as yeah. Most, a lot of us would. Um, so yeah, there is work involved, but it's on ourselves. Definitely. And that's what I'm so passionate about today. And Mm -hmm. what I work with my clients on is, you know, you can put down the drink or whatever it is that you use to avoid emotion, because that's what we're doing, really. We're Mm -hmm. trying to avoid uncomfortable emotions. And we'll do that with drinking. And if it's not drinking, it might be drugs. And if it's not drugs, it might be gambling, food, sex, shopping, anything you can think of. Random (laughs) scrolling. Scrolling. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. So once you remove that thing, the feelings, the uncomfortable feelings don't go away. So then it's like, well, how do I learn how to sit with it? You know, you need to remove that armor that I was talking about, that armor that we all put on. It's just a part of the human condition that we're going to experience challenging times in our life. Unless we're shown how to remove that armor, we get to adulthood and we're we're covered in it. You know, you've got the Mm, helmet mm. on, the chest plate, you've got the chain metal over your eyes. Like it's crazy, right? So you need to remove that armor. Mm. You need to learn how to sit in uncomfortable emotions and process them. Know that a feeling won't kill you. A drink might. Mm -hmm. And learn how to clear that energy. And like I said, create that space in your mind. And through doing all of those different tools, applying these different techniques, then you can start to connect in with the authentic you. Who is the person that actually lives in there? And one of the most powerful things that I've learned how to do in recovery and in my sobriety is actually connect back in with my intuition. Yes. Because the answers were there all along. I just couldn't get to them. Mm. Yeah. And now I can, and I know who I am and I found my purpose, but it's, yeah. it's, it's start, the, the hard work, unfortunately starts when you stop drinking. It does. <laughs> and, then, and, and then it all perpetuates because when you are feeling authentic and that's how you're interacting with other people, then other people know how to talk to you. They know how to relate to you and you feel seen and heard. And then it all kind of, I don't know that, that imagery comes to mind of just seeing the the bottom of that sea floor, sea floor mm. clearly, or mm. um, you you know who you are. Other people know who you are, and then it it all just gets easier. You're not pretending to be anybody else when you're interacting out there. Yeah, yeah, um, and you do. You get to a point where you no longer want to escape reality. Perfectly said, Ash. We would love to hear all about. Uh, the wonderful work that you are doing now to help others in recovery, uh, I guess, including a little bit about your pod and I guess what's on the horizon for you going forward? Yeah, lots of exciting things are happening at the moment. So as I said, I'm really getting so much fulfillment and joy out of helping other people to experience the same life-changing shifts that I have experienced. And I do that by either guiding people through one-on-one coaching and mentoring, or I also have group containers that I run. And we do, we go into really looking at 
Well, firstly, how do we stop hiding behind a smile? So how do you step out from behind that smile and actually start thriving and and living a life beyond your wildest dreams? Mm. Like it is so, so possible when we stop drinking. And then the next thing is looking at, okay, so I'm sober. And maybe for the first time in your life, you're actually learning who you are. And my experience in this was at a year sober, I looked around at my life and I went, oh my gosh, I didn't, I didn't choose any of this. Like this just kind of all happened. And so at one year sober, because I was told not to make any big decisions in the first 12 months. And I, yeah. and I took everything. This was and actually to answer your earlier question about what some of the things I did when I left rehab, every suggestion that was given to me by somebody who was older in sobriety, I took it literally. And I did what I was told without mm. any questioning. And mm. so one of the things was don't make anything, any big decisions. And so I waited until 12 months. And then at the start of 2021, I ended my marriage I moved back to Melbourne, which was my hometown, having been in Sydney for eight years. Like big, big life changes that were, I was, it was almost like I was the captain of the ship again. Mm. Like I'd just been sitting back as a passenger, letting life happen to me, kind of being like, weather's a bit bumpy today, you know, just kind of like crashing and bashing. I was like, no, 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 now it's time to step back into my power and actually start to steer this ship the way I want it to go. And the really cool thing with that is had you told me that I'd be doing any of this, any of the stuff I'm doing today, if you told me that at the start of my sobriety or even a year in, I wouldn't have believed you. But truly anything is possible when you stop drinking and you actually work out the person you're born to be, like who are you meant to be? And that's what I help people discover, just to create that meaningful life that's Mm. on purpose and yeah. where you, like we said, don't want to escape reality anymore because the present moment is just so, so delicious. Yeah. 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 So beautifully said, Ash. Uh, and I think learning who you are is so fundamental to it. And so many people operate blindly going uh, through their everyday jobs at high intensity, drinking at high intensity. Mm-hmm. And often you hit um, mid-40s, don't you? And you you stop and then you go, you look up. And a lot of my clients also say, I don't even know who I am. I don't even know yes. what I like. I don't know yep. what my interests are or mm. I can't even visualize my future. Um, mm. Mm. How did I get here? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I've found that a lot of the, my clients are or, or people I've met who want to stop drinking or have stopped, they're the people that have that fire inside mm. that is wanting to come out. Oh, yes. You know, that's what we discover after we mm. stop. But the niggles there, you know, fighting just that there's still something in there going, let me out. You know, I'm mm. here. So, mm. yeah, yeah, it's so, so true. Now, Ash, where can our listeners find you? Um, and I guess what do you have, you know, an offer in terms of services if they want to get to know you a bit more and, and see how you can help them? Absolutely. So you can find me through my website, ashbutters.com. You can hit me up on Instagram at ashbutters. That's two S's at the end. I'm pretty (laughs) active on there and I'll always endeavor to get back to any messages that are shared there. Of course, there's the podcast Behind the Smile, which is on Apple, Spotify, all the places you find great pods. And then I have my mentoring programs. So if that's something that you're interested in working together, I have group containers, I have one-on-one mentorship available as well. And then you can reach out to me probably best through the website for that. 
Fabulous. Oh, Ash Butters, it's been so good to talk to you and thank you for being so open and vulnerable. It's just been such a pleasure having you on. Likewise. And ladies, thank you so, so much for the incredible work you're doing. It's brilliant. Thank Thank you. Thank you. you. Bye, Ash. See ya. If you don't already know, in addition to our podcasting work, we are each sobriety coaches with our own separate businesses, helping people to drink less. If you or a loved one want to take a break from alcohol, we invite you to have a look at our individual websites. Meg's is glassfulfilled.com.au and Bella's is isabellaferguson.com.au. So take the next step that feels right for you.